This evening's talk is about compassion. And beginning with some words from American author and photographer Eudora Welty. My continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, and each other's human plight. There's an image in Tibetan Buddhism that represents the awakened energy of unconditional, boundless compassion. It's an image of a bodhisattva that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes, an eye painted in the palm of each hand that's reaching out. A thousand arms, uh, or a thousand eyes, uh, to see all of the suffering in the world, and a thousand arms reaching out to help. A number of years ago now, I attended a a retreat with the Vietnamese monk and venerable teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. And at that retreat, there were about 400 adults and also about 30 children. The children were off each day having their own retreat, but every morning they would uh, come to all of us adults and do uh, a show and tell uh, before we began our retreat day. Each morning they, they stood up in front of us and in various ways throughout the retreat each day shared with us what they had been doing and learning during the previous day. One morning, all 30 children came into the meditation tent and stood in a long line facing the 400 adults. And then each child stretched out both their arms uh, with their arms wide open facing us. And the palm uh, of each child's hand had an eye painted on it. Then one little boy from the group went up onto the platform where Tignat Han was sitting and painted an eye in the palm of one of Tai's hands. And that morning, that was their whole presentation. It was very touching and inspiring and quite beautiful. So, compassion, karuna in Pali. What is it experientially? About 54 years ago, early one June morning, I heard the wake-up stirrings uh, of one of my newly born twin sons. Holding him that morning with a very sweet tenderness between us as he lay open-eyed and quite relaxed and, and very contented. And my eyes looking deeply into his face 
with a kind of wonderment and a curiosity. And suddenly I felt my heart tremble and quiver. The vibration permeating my chest and my heart center and then moving through my whole body and in through my mind. A feeling of connection an intimacy with him and with life as a force, you could say. Immediately interwoven with these moments was a deep sense that this tiny being would experience many, many difficult things in his life. Difficult situations, many painful and bodily mental experiences within himself. And a wave of the breadth of the suffering in life literally quivered through me in the midst of those moments of sweetness and beauty. And then some tears came but not the aching tears of the sadness that can come with feelings of attachment. That morning the tears were really much more like the juice of compassion. And that sense of, yes, this is how it is for all of us. And for him too. That morning's experience has returned many, many times to me and in many ways as both a teaching and as a practice for me within the enormous gratitude that living immersed in the Dhamma brings. The Buddha described compassion as the trembling, the quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering, ours or that of another. Compassion is the heartbeat of the Buddha's teaching. It's one of the two wings which, with, with, with which we learn to fly free. The wing of wisdom, of deeply understanding the not-self nature of things, and the wing of compassion, the heart's connection to beings that comes through a very deep understanding of dukkha, the cycle of unsatisfactoriness that runs through most of our lives, knowing its cause and knowing the way of its end. Because meditation practice has the power to clear away, to purify the mental obscurations, purify the states of mind that constrict, that bind the heart, bind the mind, practice actually makes us very much keenly aware, aware of and much, much sensitive, very, very sensitive to the suffering in this world. How can we bring our deepening sensitivity, our 
so-called new awareness of dukkha into our practice, into this path, this path of liberation. First, it's crucial that our practice be grounded in mind, be grounded in the non-judgmental acceptance of the heart of metta. This, this is what metta offers us. And it's also important that practice is grounded in concentration, mindfulness, and investigation. Meaning a clear, focused mindfulness and the discrimination of states, states of body, heart, and mind, connecting us with what arises and seeing it, knowing it clearly. A mind, a heart, that's steeped in metta is what allows for the connection of mindfulness to take place in relationship to whatever arises. The blossoming of this important capacity along the way of this training is intimately involved with our growing capacity to compassionately meet and clearly see the difficult, to compassionately and wisely understand the suffering that shows up in life. Compassion is a very tender, open state, and at the same time a a place within us of great strength. Tenderness, openness, and strength the capacity to stay present in relationship with whatever's happening within our own body-mind continuum and in relationship to what's going on around us and not feel overwhelmed by any of it. And so we gently pursue practice, gently practice maintaining our awareness of suffering when this shows up within the field of our experience. I think many of us, maybe most of us, are pretty strongly conditioned to sweep discomfort, sweep dis-ease under the rug, hide it away in the metaphorical closet or attic, or we hide ourselves away by shutting off, maybe by going to sleep, by distracting ourselves, or possibly through ignoring or maybe trivializing suffering so that we don't see or feel the pain of others in the world, so that we don't see and feel our own pain, our own suffering. Our conditioned habits of Avoidance and distraction are actually all based in fear. The fear that if we really recognize, connect with, and open to the pain, it will touch in too deeply and then cause us more discomfort 
anguish, maybe unbearable pain. The aim of compassion, the aim of karuna practice is to move towards turning our developing capacity for heartful, unconditional acceptance, which is metta, to gently turn the heart, the mind, specifically towards suffering in relationship to ourselves or in relationship to others. And then with courage and with understanding, open to and move towards the alleviation of suffering. Through the purification of the mind that practice affords us, over time we learn to do this without getting overwhelmed by the suffering but rather to feel and know an unobstructed strength and courage and care and have understanding, which is what gives us the necessary and wholesome energy to act. In cultivating the heart of metta and karuna, along with the discipline of developing concentration and mindful awareness and investigation, a whole new realm of choices and insights and responses become available to us. So we meet and accept what is, which again is the essence of Mindfulness, ba- mindfulness that's based in metta. And then, <clears throat> in whatever ways might be appropriate, we're able to help. We're able to help without any aspect of aversion creating a barrier. True compassion, or as it's sometimes called, boundless compassion, is when we have the capacity to open our heart to the suffering of all beings, ourself included, and in our mind, not make others or ourself more important than each other. Compassion is neither strained nor is it reactive. It flows from the heart with the capacity to transform the fear, the anger, the judgment, the resentment, disappointment, grief, or expectation that might be present in relationship to another or in relationship to our own bodily and mental experiences. With the development and the blossoming of compassion, we're cultivating again this term, an immeasurable impartiality, which the Tibetan Buddhist teacher Chogyang Trungpa described as a pure and fearless openness without territorial limitation. Compassion has the power to melt to dissolve the 
separation between self and other. To dissolve the separation in the direct experience of our body, heart, and mind in an open-hearted and yet impersonal, non-identified way. It's our clinging to this idea of self, our deeply, deeply habituated thought of a separate, solid, static self that perpetuates this painful separation, or as it's sometimes called, this duality. Compassion has the power to dissolve or to counteract the uneasiness, the discomfort, the contraction, or the withdrawal in the face of others or in the face of our own pain, our own suffering, so that we're really honestly and truly present with them, others, and with ourselves. So how different this is from the reactive patterns of anger and fear and resentment and judgment and unhealthy grief or jealousy or greed. Or what sometimes happens is a kind of checking out, a dissociating from the mental and physical discomfort. Usually, many of us, maybe most of us, think of mental states or emotional states as being positive or negative. As our understanding deepens through our practice, we begin to know that most important, helpful, and a really true way of seeing and knowing mental states is the differentiation between reaction and response. Reaction, or breaking that word down, reaction, is always based in the past, on past conditioned patterns that are rooted in an agenda. Patterns and agendas that are always primarily associated with I, me, and mine. So they're consequently not connected to don't really see and don't serve the whole reality of our present moment experience. Reaction or reaction always supports and recreates some aspect of our particular karmic predicament. It refines our habitual thoughts, or reifies, excuse me, It reifies our habitual thoughts, our habitual actions, our habitual self-identification as this is who I am and in relation to another and this is who you are. Compassion is a response, not a reaction, not a reaction. There's a story about um, Zen Master Ryokan, whose brother invited him uh, to visit his house and speak to his uh, delinquent son. Well, of course, Ryokan went, but he didn't say any words at all of admonishment to the boy. 
He stayed overnight, spent time with the family and the boy, and uh, prepared to leave early uh, the next morning. As his wayward nephew was uh, sitting on the ground helping his old uncle Ryokan lace up his straw sandals, the boy felt a drop of warm water touch his hand. And the boy glanced up. He saw his uncle Ryokan looking down at him with his eyes full of tears. Ryokan returned home and he was told that the nephew, soon after his visit, the nephew changed for the better. Compassion training, the practice and the unfolding of karuna, it's quite challenging, can be quite challenging. It's often difficult. It means that we take to heart the Buddha's words, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And of course, as each one of us knows, by now, the Buddha wasn't about to go on and tell us the best way to suffer. That's not what he was saying. We're very well practiced in this. He also was not recommending suffering, of course. He was, though, pointing out that unsatisfactoriness, confusion, anguish are all intrinsic to our human condition or Actually, more accurately, these states of mind are intrinsic until we wake up to the true nature of life. So what the Buddha was doing was pointing out the truth of its existence, the existence of dukkha, and that looking directly, deeply, and honestly at the reality of suffering in our lives is what leads us to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it, which then in turn leads to a transformation and relinquishment of the mental states that cause us so much anguish. Trying to control, <clears throat> trying to cling or, or push away or avoid events or any moments of this constantly changing life with the nature of it all being uncontrollable, ungovernable, ungraspable, that will inevitably bring suffering. So it's our relationship to phenomena that brings the suffering that the Buddha speaks about being free from. I actually found it amazing and pretty illuminating when I began to see that as I practiced, the particular objects that come into awareness don't really change very much. Basically, we keep attending to the same body-mind objects. It's how we experience, how we see them, how we know them, It's the relationship to our objects of attention that changes. 
And so we find out something that I think is kind of astonishing and fortunate about suffering. That it itself is a conditional, totally contingent aspect of life. It's not absolute. As we begin to see clearly and continue steadily climbing the mountain, so to say, of metta and compassion and wisdom, letting the heavy rock of our unskillful and sometimes cherished habits and identities roll to the bottom, we're less and less often habitually and blindly caught and trapped in old patterns of a suffering relationship to life. The capacities of kindness and compassion and mindful awareness and concentration and wisdom really begin to take root and grow. Our heart opens and we are truly then beginning to awaken. I'd like to share a a bit of a letter that I received from a very dear friend of mine um, a few years ago. She says, just had an insight about compassion recently. You might know my niece has been living with me for the past year. I've had lots of conflicting emotions about this, resenting it, irritated, wanting her to leave, but something holding me back from actually telling her that. I recently realized it's compassion. Compassion for a kind of young, wounded soul that I'm following through on. Compassion, I think, is bound up with integrity. I realized that if I let my all my conflicting feelings and issues take over, I would be compromising my integrity, my understanding and belief about the importance of compassion. Sometimes acting with compassion is hard work because it requires us to let go of limiting behaviors. So I'm still feeling some of those feelings, but feel very clear about my course of action. Life can be so rich and challenging in all of its connections to friends, parents, and children. So where does the heart's capacity for compassion and our inclination to cultivate compassion come from? The seeds of compassion within each of us have been planted many, many times. Every time we've experienced another who was willing to be with us when we were in pain, every time we've been cared for, attended to, listened to, or just simply sat with when we've been sick or hurting physically or when we've been in some emotional pain, the seeds of compassion were sown. In any moment of the 
purity of a compassionate connection. Relationship is actually transformed by cutting through the me-you, the subject-object dualism. Karuna is a unifying energy. The giver and the receiver are joined, not separate, in any moment of compassionate, pure presence. These moments hold and carry the particular energy of the heart, the particular energy of compassion, and plant the seeds of this energy in the receiver. And for most of us, this happens, has happened and happens, continues to happen many, many times throughout our life. And so we have many seeds to cultivate through our practice. And then, of course, we in turn plant many seeds every time we remain present with another being who's suffering, who's in pain physically or emotionally. A seed of compassion is planted. And the seed of karuna within our own heart grows. It's watered, it's fertilized, and it grows. Every time we wholesomely respond rather than react both internally and outwardly to a difficult or painful set of circumstances, a seed of compassion is planted and the seeds of karuna within our own heart grow. And sometimes the learning curve can be quite steep. The emotional or physical pain facing us from another or within ourselves, asks us to step into what might be unknown territory and into an unfettered, compassionate relationship. And this could actually take us to the very core of our being, to the very core of what might be our subtle, self-centered agenda, the agenda that props up the veil of subtle or maybe not so subtle separation, duality, that we've been living behind maybe forever. These learning curves that come our way once in a while hold the possibility for us to recognize and to let go of the habitual knots, we could say, that bind us. Which in turn then offers us the really truly amazing possibility of an unfettered, compassionate connection with another and with ourself as well. So, looking at it this way, the interaction within within every relationship has the potential of planting a seed for the arising of a clear and true presence within both beings. The interaction within every relationship has the potential of transmission, as I mentioned in relationship to metta as well. It's a kind of circular process. We receive the seeds of compassion as a transmission. 
and we give the transmission out to others and also again to ourselves through acts of compassion. And on it goes, this spiraling transmission of karuna. For me, and I think also for many others, an amazing and inspiring uh, contemporary embodiment and transmitter of compassion has been Mother Teresa. There's a video, a film, about her life and her work that maybe some of you have seen. And in this this film, there's a short scene uh, where she stops by the bed of a man who had just been brought in off the street and who's extremely emaciated and very, very sick. And she gets down uh, on the floor very close to him and looking directly into his eyes and just simply then lays her hand over his heart. And he looks directly back at her. And for those few moments, the appearance of the enormous suffering in his face changes completely into light and love. A few moments of a gentle and very powerful transmission. With the heart of compassion, there's a great strength and trust in our ability to bear witness and to face whatever it is, to be with what is, without wanting to make it disappear, without ignoring it or repressing it or pretending that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, ours or another's, says, I I can't stand this. I can't be near it. I can't bear this feeling. And it's really, really important when this comes up in the mind, when this comes up in the heart, it's really important to connect with the aversion itself, with mindful awareness that's based in the non-judgmental connection and acceptance of metta. Meeting this reactive mind state, meeting the reactive pattern that's arising with open-hearted kindness and and mindfulness. This is the attention that connects with this is how it is right now. This is fear. This is grief. This is anger. This is judgment. This is what's appearing in this moment. And this is how it is. It's really so important to recognize our limits without self-judgment, however they may show up in the process of the cultivation of karuna. Karuna is never developed by force. It's appropriate and it's natural to back off from painful experience at times. In our 
practice and in our life as a whole. Kindness and gentleness with ourself is a very important and necessary aspect of our practice. This is metta and karuna itself. In relationship to this, I'd like to share a piece from a book called An Interrupted Life, which is uh, a diary that was written uh, between 1941 and 1943 by a woman named Eddie Hillesom. Eddie was a 27-year-old Dutch Jewish woman who in the midst of the Second World War lived in a large house with a group of people in Amsterdam and then in very bad health lived in the Westerbrook concentration camp and then briefly lived in Auschwitz where she was exterminated uh, on November 30th in 1943. Amazingly, these years of great suffering throughout Europe were for Eddie a time of enormous personal growth and paradoxically enough, a time of personal liberation. In the midst of the scenario of extermination that was being played out all over Europe, Eddie, we could say, wrote the counter scenario. Her diary is an amazing account of our possibility as human beings in the midst of immense extreme difficulty. So this is from Eddie, from her diary. I think that I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice. Lose myself. You could call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word, but anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself. But it's not so simple, the sort of quiet hour. It has to be learned. A lot of unimportant inner litter uh, and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of meditation to turn one's innermost being into a vast, empty plain, with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view, so that something of God can enter you, and something of love, too. Not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour taking pride in how sublime you feel, but the love you can apply to small, everyday things. And then at another point in her diary, she writes, Mysticism must rest on crystal clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. Eddie, with her clear vision, instinctively knew that she wouldn't return from the concentration camps. And so she asked a friend to keep her diaries. She knew that she wanted uh, to leave some trace behind to share the solutions that she'd found for her difficult life. 
from the last, and this is now from the last entry of her diary. Ever since last night, I have been lying here trying to assimilate just a little of the terrible suffering that has to be endured all over the world, to accommodate just a little of the great sorrow the coming of winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quietly and try to anticipate something of the days that are to come. When I suffer for the vulnerable, is it not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer? And then she ends her diary with this. We should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. That's her last entry. Survivors from the camp have confirmed that Eddie was a very luminous and compassionate personality to the very last. It's important to stay mindful in the moving away from and the coming close to the opening to and the withdrawal that happens in relationship to the mental, uh, physical, or situational pain that's showing up in our life. As it is with any object that we give a heartful, mindful attention to in our practice, our perception of the object will change as we see it more and more clearly. And consequently then, our relationship to the object will also change. And in this process, we need to befriend ourselves. We need to come close and see how it is, see how it really is. It may be a very strong and intense energy but it's not static, it's not solid. Can we come so close with the great intimacy of our practice to see how it really is? Can we come so close, grounded in the heart connection of acceptance and with a growing compassion, and see the, all the various colors of the rainbow of our experience in themselves? and begin to see through these colors, even the strongest of colors. If a really dear friend comes to us with their troubles, we usually give them our attention, we usually give them our care in some way. We don't usually tell them to stop feeling what they're feeling or tell them to get away from us in the midst of their suffering. Our practice teaches us how to befriend ourself, which quite naturally leads to the development and the blossoming of a a connection with all beings. We come to really, really know that the pain in our heart or the pain in our back essentially isn't different 
from the pain in the heart or the pain in the back of any being anywhere in the world. I think that for most of us, our hand uh, quite naturally and quite spontaneously might reach out to, say, soothe the ache in our foot or rub the ache in our back or touch the ache in our heart. What is it that sometimes holds us back from spontaneously responding to the suffering of another in this very same simple, natural way? Essentially, this is due to a very deeply conditioned and almost visceral clinging to the idea of a separate self. As long as we're immersed and blindly living in and out of this fixed idea, spontaneous concern for others will primarily be felt for those who fall into the range of who we think of as mine. And there may be some degree of indifference and maybe even a more overt aversion in relationship to the pain of those who are outside of this range of mine. As our heart opens and our understanding deepens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and constrictive thoughts based in self-centeredness. As our heart opens and understanding grows, connection and empathy blossom. And our sense of being uh, a kind of closed cell begins to dissolve. It's not that I or me vanishes into some bottomless hole of nothing. Instead, we really discover that we're truly, simply a cell that forms part of, and to quote Stephen Batchelor, a cell that forms part of the interdependent, multicellular organism of existence itself. As wisdom blossoms, our way of being in and with conventional reality is transformed. We come to know experientially that I, the sense of I, actually only in relation, exists in relationship to you. I, me, is not eliminated. Me is transformed. There is only relationship. I, me, you, them, us, etc., have never and will never exist in isolation. Exist in any in isolation or in any solid, static, separate way. The notion of me and you, that seemingly fixed conceptual distinction of me and you begins to dissolve with the blossoming of the unconditional acceptance, metta, and compassion, karuna. 
and in relationship to the way we go about our life. How we relate in this life. Spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge more and more quite naturally, more often. And we begin to understand in ourselves, so to say, that the needs of I and me are no more important than those of you. This is really the birth of unconditional kindness and compassion. And some words from the 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. Both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain. What is so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And yet, as we know, it's not so easy, this relating to others and to ourself with the clarity of a pure, compassionate heart. As we have many old and seemingly new personal agendas. We have many deeply conditioned habit patterns. I think that for many people there's confusion in relationship to the difference between pity uh, and an unhealthy grief and compassion. Both of these energies, pity and grief, are what are called classically the near enemy mm. or what looks like or what masquerades as compassion. Mm. Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of what we could call mercy, instead of a true, open-hearted, caring presence. Pity is actually a subtle form of aversion. It manifests as a contraction away from, a withdrawal, if we really look carefully and see it clearly. When we pity... There's a subtle, or maybe not so subtle, wanting it to be different. And also maybe some feeling that, I'm glad it's not me that's suffering so much. There also may be a touch of arrogance in relationship to pity. That's a cover-up for the fear and our inability at that particular moment to be with the suffering that we're encountering. The energy of unhealthy, or what we could call the unwholesome component of grief, is fraught with self-centeredness. It's actually a very self-obsessed energy and can lead us 
into depression if it actually goes unrecognized. One can get caught and get lost in the downward spiral of this strong and deep contraction if we clearly don't see it. And if we clearly don't see it, if we clearly see it, we find that it's actually a fixation on the idea of a very separate, solid me. And this fixation can often be a strong component in the midst of an unrecognized, unhealthy grief. When we feel pity in ourself for ourself, or when we're (coughs) caught in the self-centered obsession of an unhealthy grief, in those moments we're actually not experiencing any true caring or kindness or compassion for ourself or for another being. But rather we're caught in a kind of sticky, sinking feeling, that heavy ache of feeling sorry for ourselves, that poor me with that capital M-E, that feeling. And in this place, there's not much, if any, capacity to act towards taking care of ourselves or taking wholesome or appropriate care of another being. So again, within the natural spaciousness of a non-judgmental, mindful awareness, as, as is in metta, can we practice acknowledging and coming close to our experiences of body and mind, letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept, through the veil of identification, myself, myself as a pitiable, pitiful person. But rather, there's the possibility of, well, here's pity, here's grief. This is what's arising. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am, but it's come up. How is it? So actually taking an interest. Metta, mindfulness, and compassion are necessary companions on this path to awakening. And in the seeming magic that can happen when they all work together. And we might be surprised by the arising of compassion in what might feel like a most unlikely circumstance. Compassion arising in a most unexpected moment and maybe in a most unexpected way. I'd like to share a piece from my diary that comes from my participation in the first Bearing Witness retreat that Roshi Bernie Glassman held in Poland uh, in November of 1996 at the Auschwitz concentration camp. (coughs) 
It's well into the second month of offering the Buddha Dhamma here in Poland. Tomorrow begins a few days away from my teaching duties. I'll take a train and go to the remains of the concentration camp at Auschwitz. It's American Thanksgiving. Bernie Glassman has organized the first Bearing Witness retreat. As we slowly walk through the camp on this first harsh gray November morning, I'm aware of two distinct qualities of energy that seem to permeate the atmosphere, the land, the buildings, imbuing every aspect of Auschwitz that we come into contact with. The first of these is an enormous depth of sadness, an incredible heaviness and a heartache that's palpable. It's everywhere, in and emanating from everything. It brings tears to the eyes of the many of the um, to many of the hundred and forty people attending this retreat. The stacked bunks and open sewer living spaces of the so-called prisoners, the shocking photos of children and displays of their shoes, clothes, and toys touch my heart to a depth almost too much to hold. The other quality of energy is amorphous, yet also palpable. It's in the atmosphere and at moments in my body and heart. It manifests like waves of razor-sharp edginess and tension, moments of touching what feels like insanity. This is even harder to let fully in than the immense sadness, as it's a far less familiar feeling, and thus less comfortable. There is a sense of not wanting to get too close to whatever this is. The sorrow and heartache are immediately understandable, understandable to me, but I'm not so easily comprehending the atmospheric, almost terrifying tension, the raw discordance and alienation, until one afternoon I find myself alone on my knees in front of an oven where the bodies of those murdered by the Nazis were burned. Tears stream from my eyes, and Om Mane Padme Hum, the Tibetan mantra of compassion, the jewel in the heart of the lotus, spontaneously repeats out loud from my heart for the Nazis. A deep, intuitive understanding of utter insanity and the untenable suffering therein is fathomed. The depth of disconnection, separation from life, from oneself, the unmitigated alienation that one would have to be living in and living with in order to murder one, let alone millions, is recognized. My heart cracks open with this recognition. In the midst of this unforeseen insight, my whole being is flooded with unconditional compassion not for the actions of the Nazis, but for the actors. Since that Thanksgiving retreat, I've been deeply aware that just as each of us has the capacity to help others from the heart of compassion, every one of us also knows at least moments of disconnection, separation from life, from ourselves and the unmitigated alienation and utter, utter insanity, untenable suffering therein. I know now so much more clearly that if one identifies with this experience as I, me, mine, 
and mires into this self-identification, this place of great existential suffering. It can lead to outward actions that in turn cause suffering for others, as happened to such an extreme degree in Auschwitz. Since the days in Auschwitz, I'm feeling enormous gratitude that somehow all of the opportunities and blessings that have been in place for me to connect with these teachings and practices, which are the best medicine for all wounds. A couple of years after I returned from Poland, this story, this piece from my diary, was put into a newsletter that the Taos New Mexico Meditation Group sent out. And I'd like to uh, share a response that I received from an Israeli Dhamma student who at that time uh, was very involved in Israeli-Palestinian peace initiative work, which is uh, very important to remember as I read this, uh, and especially to remember as you hear the last few sentences of this Israeli Dhamma student's sharing. And she says, Thank you for the newsletter you sent me. I would like to ask your permission to translate your article about compassion to Hebrew for our Sangha here. We seem to need to be reminded of this quality, especially now when we're facing such difficult times. I was deeply touched reading your diary about the compassion you expressed for the Nazis. It was very hard for me to understand. From my early childhood, I saw the horror and the pain on the faces of people who survived and were the parents or grandparents of friends of mine. They and other people told us every year stories from what they have experienced. I felt as if they wanted us to carry the horror with us forever. I remember once I took a night train from Copenhagen to Amsterdam and was not aware of the fact that the train had to go through Germany. I went to sleep and was awakened when the train stopped at the border and the German police came and asked for my passport. I was never so terrified. I felt all the blood in my veins froze. After a while, I fell asleep again and had a dream. In my dream, the train had to stop and the policeman asked everybody to step down from the train. I refused, saying again and again that I'm not allowed to tread on German soil. Finally, I took some books that were in my bag and put them on the ground and very carefully made my way. Then I woke up from the dream. I think only then I realized how deeply I was influenced by the stories I heard as a child. I cannot even bear the thought of going to Poland. I'm too frightened to even think about it. From this state of mind, I tried to connect with what you experienced. I felt it's very important for me to be able to make such a transition. A few days later, I watched on TV a regular video that Hamas is broadcasting after each terrorist act. A young man with guns in both his hands, a flag, and the book of the Quran explained that he is ready to give up his life and kill as many Israelis as possible. 
And she goes on to say, and this is really, you have to remember that she was working quite diligently at this point with Israeli-Palestinian peace process. And she goes on to say, his eyes were empty. Life, his, others, any life had no meaning for him. I began to cry. And then I thought, maybe this was the unconditional compassion you were expressing. I could connect with to this now. I wanted to share this with you and again to thank you, she says. So a lot of conflicting stuff going on for people. And some words from Vimalatakar, the Indian spiritual master who was a a long-time student of Krishnamurti's, who I think I quoted uh, recently in in another Dhamma talk. Vimala has been described as embodying the essence of enlightened consciousness and social responsibility. And these are her words. We are at odds with ourselves internally. We believe that the inner is fundamentally different from the outer. That what is me is quite separate from the not me. That divisions among people and nations are necessary. And yet we wonder why there are tensions, conflicts, wars in the world. The conflicts begin with minds that believe in fragmentation and are ignorant of wholeness. When we come face to face with the actualities of human and planetary suffering, what does this powerful moment of truth do to us? Do we retreat into the comforts of theories and defense mechanisms, or are we awakened at the core of our being? And so these two wings of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom that comes about through our experiential insight into the impermanent, the unsatisfactory, and the not-self nature of all conditioned things. And the other wing being unconditional compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, and our way of being in this world that ensues from this. In reflecting on the lineage of these amazing teachings that we've inherited through the centuries from our teachers and their teachers and their teachers' teachers and all the way back to the Buddha, this heartfelt wisdom lineage of the extended Dhamma family, If it wasn't for the wing of the great compassion of the Buddha, we wouldn't have these teachings available to us today. I always find it really interesting and helpful and inspiring to read the Buddha's words about himself. His speaking about his own humanness, which he even spoke about in relationship to his process of awakening. 
In one of his discourses from the Majjhima we find him with a small group of monks, a small group of bhikkhus, sharing with them what his thoughts were soon, very soon after his awakening. And these are, this is the discourse, the Buddha speaking. This Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It's hard for such a generation to see this truth. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough with teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse dhamma which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. And then the Buddha goes on to say, Considering thus my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching the dhamma. And then he tells his monks that soon after this, a certain Brahman came to him and pleaded. And the Brahman says, The world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Tathagata, the mind of the enlightened one, accomplished and fully enlightened, inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Venerable sir, let the blessed one teach the Dhamma, let the sublime one teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. And then the Buddha goes on with his monks and says, Then I listened to the Brahma's pleading, and out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. Surveying such, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good and with bad qualities. I saw beings easy to teach and hard to teach. And then I replied to the Brahma, Out of compassion for beings, open to them are the doors of the deathless. Let those with ears now show their faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahma, I did not speak the Dhamma, sublime and subtle. So this wing of unconditional compassion, profound, subtle, and in itself, obviously, not so easy to reach in its fullness, and its purity. Karuna so honestly and clearly spoken about in the Buddha's description of his own awakening. Karuna is the wing that connects the absolute understanding of not-self to the relative nature of our humanness. One way to look at this that I think may be helpful in understanding it is is this. To know not self means to know directly and clearly that life is only in the immediate presence of just what is being experienced. 
to know compassion means that we fully attend to what arises in experience because it's all we know and can ever really truly know. So closing the talk from an unfinished book that was started by my student Roy Oakes, who I did mention in another Dhamma talk, who died of AIDS-related complications. This is from his unfinished book. My first eight-day Vipassana retreat. Trepidation and desire flooded my soul in equal measure. Will I encounter deeply buried demons from my past? Will emotions overwhelm me? Will I be able to stop crying? In the days leading up to the retreat, it's as if my body is attempting to erode the quiet resolve of my mind to go. Pain gathers in my back, making my daily sit uncomfortable. Unaccountably, my gums start to throb and bleed. My left leg grows numb. On the day I make the two-hour drive to the retreat center, a splitting headache rips through my brain, bringing me to tears. I don't care what you do, I say out loud to my body. I'm going to that retreat. That gives you a taste of Roy. That's the kind of person he was. (laughs) The retreat schedule looks daunting from 5.45 a.m. to 10 p.m. Nine sits alternate with eight walks for six days. Two half days are also full. Meals are deliciously vegetarian. The air is abuzz with insects feasting on the nectar of the hundreds of flowers around the center. Before we take up our vows of silence, I tell one of the two teachers that I may need to nap during the day and I'm reassured by the gentle understanding I receive. Participate as you when you can, and rest when you need to. By our first sit, all my bodily pain is gone. Blessed silence and avoiding eye contact with others enables me to develop a cocoon of self. By the second full day, I marvel that I'm attending all of the sessions without the need for naps. I begin to feel energized and even find time to incorporate the Hatha Yoga series I learned years ago into the schedule. I sense new levels of awareness about the nature of this practice, about the Buddha's compassion. During one Dhamma talk, we're asked to consider what a nightmare life would be if there were no change. By the fourth day, questions during Dhamma talks increase in intensity. Internally, he's talking about. Are metta and karuna better than vipassana? Is practice, in practice, is holding on to the breath different from holding a thought? If we can observe our thoughts rising and falling, where do they come from? Where do they go? We're creating an energy of trust. My heart opens to all retreatants struggling their own struggles. Who am I to judge anyone? They are me. The rhythm of the retreat mimics the rhythm of our breath and the rhythm of nature. All around us, cycles come and go, repeat and fall away. AIDS is a cycle. 
It's not my condition, but the human condition. It's the great gift that has taught me about impermanence. I realize how Vipassana-like AIDS has been in my life, always bringing me back to the now, always reminding me to be present. And Vipassana is a cycle. It's in my life and out. It touches everything I do and is nowhere. The last day of the retreat, during a walking meditation, I was overwhelmed with sadness for all humanity and for the planet. I cried and cried in pain. How can there ever be an end to suffering? And then I stopped and looked up at the hill behind the meditation center. My heart as though leaping open for a moment into the beauty of this life. The suffering and the beauty. All of it being held but not held onto. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.